This week on the Patient Driven Supply Network, TraceLink's Roddy Martin talks to pharma supply chain leader Jeffrey Glass about redundancy, flexibility, and why the traditional linear supply chain is obsolete. Jeff, welcome to the thought leadership session series that we're putting together at TraceLink. And I really welcome having you on this. You and I go back a long time from the days when you were involved in you know, way down in the depths of MESs and batch records to now that you are investing and you're leading and have been CEO of, of a biotech company and involved in cell and gene therapy, it's obviously a, a massive rise. So I'm really curious, introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your roles and how you've seen the supply chain evolve in importance. And if you can just play on this issue of agility, we don't want to dwell on COVID-19, but the point is uh, building agility and resilience in the supply chain is fundamental for healthcare. Uh, So give us some perspectives on that and we'll see where the discussion goes, but welcome, thank you. Well, well, thank you, uh, Roddy, and and to the entire TraceLink team for for having me on board. yeah, I, I certainly was reflecting back and, you know, I've been in the biopharma space for 25 years, spent nearly the first 10 in management consulting with Ernst & Young when you and I met each other. And, you know, it was back in 1997 when I was on the commissioning team for Genentech's first facility out of South San Francisco in Vacaville. And we implemented the first electronic batch record in North America which was groundbreaking at the time, but when you reflect back on it now, it's, you know, it's, it's quite different. And, and so, you know, over 25 years, I've spent a time in management consulting. I've been in leadership roles at therapeutics companies. Um, I've been in leadership roles at services companies, spent nearly seven years as an officer at Patheon. As you said, I've run some small um, therapeutic drug delivery companies. I'm currently an operating partner for Longview Capital. Um, and I'm also chairman of a public therapeutics company, Avidel Pharmaceuticals. So I, I've seen, I guess, the u- unique perspective that I've got is, you know, starting in consulting to see a lot of transformation, change, and investments. And, and I've balanced both on the therapeutics and the services side. And, and one of the things that I think is important to the theme um, that you're focusing on with agility is if you think about the industry, and rewinding back to those times, whether it's the mid-90s or, or even, you know, really the early 2000s, drug development in the life sciences space was really focused on investing in molecules and focusing on the clinical and medical thesis that those molecules had. You, you had disproportionate, like, focus by VCs, companies got started, First person they hired was a chief medical officer. Everything was about running into the clinic, seeing that first activity in man. And CMC, or Chemistry Manufacturing and Controls, which is at the heart of supply chain for the drug industry, it's kind of an afterthought for a long time. And as you know, we started funding more drugs into the clinic, and you had the big boom in biotech, which we're living in the biggest boom time of funding, certainly of my lifetime, you had a lot of missteps that weren't related to the medical activity or safety of the drugs, but missteps in shortcuts around supply chain, as you said, 
whether that's drug substance, whether that was drug product, you know, whether it was, you know, laboratory or other methods. And it took the industry some learnings through these failures. And you can track this very clearly with the number of CRLs or complete response letters rather than approvals the companies got that were CMC related and had nothing to do with the medical side. And certainly at Patheon, when I was there, we saw this like really clearly because we were offering development and manufacturing services. So I think that shift has helped put the lens for the industry on this supply chain issue. And over time, because of those learnings, you've had you know, CMC rise to more prominence in how companies structure themselves, they staff themselves, it's not the last person hired for the biotech as an afterthought. They're coming in earlier. And, you know, it's starting, you know, to be a focus of what are the budgets and what are the investments that boards are looking at for companies, right? Or do you have one API supplier? Do you have multiple sources of supply? Do you have one drug product? Right. It was standard protocol going back, you know, probably even five years that these small biopharmas, they would never qualify a second source for either of those prior to approval. Now boards are having like tough conversations saying, well, why is that? Right. Do you think that, um, and I mean, I think it's obvious. So it's, a, it's a kind of a pointed question. Do you think that COVID and the fact that we suddenly woke up and we realized you know, oh my goodness, we can't get acetaminophen because it's made in a particular country and now we can't get it out of that country or there's a certain drug where they're going to limit exporting to other countries because they want to keep it for themselves. Do you think that COVID and the pandemic has really shone a light on things like the risks of outsource, uh, outsourcing and offshoring? And a lot of the reshoring will happen just to kind of reduce the risks in the end-to-end supply chain. Yeah, I, I, I look at the issues a little differently. I, I bifurcate between domestication of supply chains, which I think is a different kettle of fish than in just having agile, flexible supply chains. I think, I, I just think about COVID as it's simply a supply chain disruption, which has right. people then look at their supply chains and say, well, why am I single threaded if I am right. and you know, it's game over if I have a disruption versus if I had planned for more flexibility in more risk management, which obviously has got a cost, but it's got a benefit. Like I'll give you the perfect example. And this is going way back into my consulting days when I was running Amgen as an account for Ernst and Young. Enron, which ended up being a big blow up in the industry, energy industry, created this cascade of effect, including in California, and what happened to utility and energy prices. Well, there was some engineer at Amgen that convinced the CEO to put a backup diesel generator against every building, every single one. And I'm sure like when he was presenting that like plan, People were like, well, why are we going to build a diesel backup against every building? And the day that Amgen got hit with the brownout, because it came to companies first, because of the massive consumers of, in, uh, of energy, and then you just walked onto campus and it was just a hum 
of diesel engines just churning. I was like, that guy is a hero. Is an absolute hero. And it was really hard, I'm sure, for him to or, or her to make that proposal and get it through the executive committee and right. the board. But they did. And, and I just think that that is a perfect analogy of how companies are starting now with some learnings to think about supply chain. And I would say, you know, you, you mentioned cell and gene therapy. You know, our industry in life sciences is a herd industry. If success is demonstrated, that is looked at as a proof point, photocopy, repeat, do what they did. And, you know, the, the science has now caught up to reality. And I think the most demonstrable scientific breakthrough has real agility supply chain lessons. And that's Avexis, which, you know, sold themselves to Novartis. They, they are the inventors of Zolgensma, which is right. the single dose therapy for spinal muscular atrophy or SMA, which is a devastating fatal disease for children that, you know, if you're a type one sufferer, you end up very debilitated and oftentimes dead before your 10th birthday. It's a horrible disease. And this is a therapy that if dosed within the first 30 days before symptoms appear, you have a perfectly normal life. Like this is why our industry does what it does to find these cures. And, and I know this story very well because one of my ex-EMGen colleagues, Andrew Knuton, was their head of technical operations. He got recruited in because they had great science, but they couldn't scale it or figure out how to get a robust process to get the drug scaled into market. Right. And so, you know, he engaged with, you know, his CEO, Sean, who, who raised an amazing amount of capital for Avexis and basically came to his executive team, as Andrew explained to me and said, you've got the money. I don't want to hear any excuses, right? right? Get it done. And, and so they took an approach of using partners and outsourcers, right? They built eventually their own small facility to get their phase three pivotal study done and to launch with partners in the back so that they never were at total risk if, if something went wrong. And all through the line of the investments that they made in Solchensma for that supply chain, it, it wasn't like just pick one option. It was have redundancies, have flexibility, have contingencies. Now that took money, but that was also the robustness that I'm sure, you know, that Vaz looked at right. when he decided to pay billions of dollars for Avexis is that it came with something that Novartis wasn't going to have to like re repair or invest or had risk. It was already industrialized. So, and, and again, you know, I, I don't know every cell and gene therapy company out there, but my hope is because of that success and the investments that Avexis made in supply chain, that others are commensurately focused on that as a core key to unlock because 
even more than biotech, in cell and gene therapy, the process is the therapy. Right. And, you know, I think you raise a very important point, and, and that's this driven by the patient, patient-centric, right? I mean, I think that if we go back 10 years, 15 years, we were, you know, investing in manufacturing plants to make millions of tablets for millions of people. I mean, oversimplification, but that's pretty well what we were doing. And we were cookie-cuttering sites so that we didn't get into compliance issues. But, but if you really went into those manufacturing operations, they were producing compliant product. They didn't see the patient. We've just had this discussion around an individual, a patient. And I can remember a large pharmaceutical company when I said to them, why don't we think about the design of the supply chain from the patient back? So let's put the context of lean into the picture. When I'm when I want to be agile and lean and resilient to the patient, there's many things I can do. And one of the most obvious is if my COGS is 15%, I just keep 300 days worth of inventory and I can have the product everywhere and I can guarantee every patient's going to get it. However, when I've got one or five or 10 or 100 patients in a little community and I think patient back and I think agile, I have to be a lot smarter about where I put my facilities, where I store my product, how I build this end-to-end supply chain. So my point being, and I think thinking, changing the mental model of supply chain to patient-centric has given us a brand new thread of thinking and thought leadership in what does agile really mean when you go from the patient back to supply? Yeah, and, and certainly when you look at the burgeoning technologies, um, like Inzolgesma is an example on the gene therapy side of cell and gene. But if we look at the other side of the coin in, in the human cell therapy, where you've got autologous products that require, you know, the donation of patients, you know, cells or other tissues to create- Like plasma, like plasma, for example. You know, therapy, you know, there- you're seeing in, you know, people made a lot of learnings from, you know, Dendrion and Provenge and, you know, trying to do an autologous therapy in centralized centers. That wasn't efficient. It's not the only reason, you know, there was obviously just minimal efficacy of nine months improvement, um, you know, in, in your lifespan there. But I think since Dendrion, there's lots of learnings of how to do this in a way that's totally different. And if you look across the big institutions that have, you know, academic or research arms attached to this, you have universities and hospitals now investing in GMP capacity to make therapies. Like that is, that is, nobody would have even conceived of that like 15 years ago, much less 20 years ago. Um, And so I, I think that is something to really pay attention to. And how does that disrupt how we think about like supply chains and who's, who's making therapies again? And this is, it's going to be very different because the examples that you gave about, you know, the old factories and making billions of tablets. Well, that was, you discovered a small molecule. You had to figure out how to synthesize that substance 
into something. And then you had to figure out how to dose that substance in a bioavailable way that was safe and effective. But the IP was really around the discovery of that molecule and that substance. Right, right. This is now totally different, right? right? right. Where it's you're, you're capturing somebody's cells or other tissues, creating an individualized therapy. And what's the IP around? The IP is around the process. It's around the result. Like it, it's a very different like lens than the drug industry is used to. And, and so, you know, it'll be very interesting to watch that evolve um, and, and to figure out what role do drug companies play in that? How do they potentially partner with people like these, you know, the, the institutions and the big hospitals? And, and, and so I, I look, I'm, I'm very encouraged by, you know, the science and, and the discoveries, but also the, the supply chain and the effectiveness and the cost is really front and center for all of these therapies that are going to have very big price tags because the cost is in the process. Right. It's not in sourcing a small molecule API. Right. And you know, what's, what's ironic about this is if you think about the technology model, all the systems involved from the way back Patheons, all the way through the brand owners, all the way through distributors, wholesalers to hospitals, retail pharmacies, it was all a linear connection of systems without visibility, without being able to easily share data, now, what you've just said is you're building a whole new industry around a particular patient that needs a particular therapy. We can't work in that long linear line of connected systems that can't exchange data, doesn't have good visibility upstream, downstream. And so, you know, this is why this Amazonification and what tracing's done with the Opus platform, the, the digital network platform, is so fundamental because we're connecting everybody to one platform. So everybody has real-time visibility around where this particular patient's therapy is on the way to the patient because we can't wait. There might be time constraints. There may be temperature constraints. There may be... So it's all about the process. So we can't support processes in long linear lines of systems, but we can support processes when we put them into digital value networks. And I think that's hugely exciting from a technology model. Well, and, and I, I have a lot of hope that, you know, the, the old saying of necessity is the best mother of invention. Right. That, you know, the crisis that globally that we're dealing with as a result of you know, the pandemic and epidemic in some areas of COVID-19, it, it's forcing certainly the life sciences industry to get out of that linear box, right? There's a lot of discussion about, okay, how long, you know, historically did it take to develop a vaccine? But, you know, when you sit, you know, world leaders and the global heads of these companies down and it's like, look, you know, no playing around. We need results. We need them quickly. We need you to tilt the battleship in everything you've got to make this work. Like, it's going to be very, I think, amazing what the results can be 
in doing that. And it's not right. going to follow the linear approach that enables a vaccine to come to market in four years because right. four years doesn't work. It's the same right. thing as like, you know, when NASA was building spacecraft and they would lock a design model like three years beforehand and they would just build it and assemble it. By the time you've assembled it, you have a three-year-old like model. And, and, you know, I know the SpaceX company fairly well because one of my best friends was the CIO for Elon there many times. So I've had a private tour. And, and you know, I, I had asked him, I said, well, what's, what's really different and unique about like the operating model here? He said, look, if we figure out that there's something that's better, like two weeks before launch, we change it, change the part, like you fix it. Like if the data says that it's better, we change it. Now, you know, we, we, we may have some failures, but we know if we do that and we make informed data-driven decisions, it's going to be better. And, and you look at the pace and what they've been able to do. And I think just as you're describing what this crisis has got our industry focused on is looking at data, looking at the right data, not worrying about some historic tried and true linear process, but what data matter and what do those data tell us? And let's make informed but rapid decisions. And, yeah. and I'm hopeful that out of one of the learnings out of this you know, crisis is that informed decisions based on the right data can lead to really beneficial outcomes in a way and at a pace that we've not seen before. Right. No, I, I mean, I think that, you know, those points are all profound. And I, and I think the, the old waterfall linear methodology of do this, then that, and then this, then that just doesn't cut it anymore. I mean, today we've got to understand our processes and data exchange and have the right analytics in place so that we can be hyper responsive. You know, being responsive and resilient is not good enough anymore. You have to be hyper responsive and hyper resilient. You've got to know where to be hyper resilient and hyper responsive because you don't need to be hyper everywhere. But the point is you've got to understand your point that you made in the beginning so well. Where are the critical choke points? So, so I think understanding process, I think, uh, you know, a lot more parallel activity uh, the demise of the waterfall-based linear system that can't see upstream or downstream, that can't share data accurately, I mean, and, and together with the pandemic, has just literally been this massive catalyst for change in the industry. And now you've got the scenario where you pivot to a you know cell gene therapy cure for one patient or ten patients or a hundred where you have to put the patient at the center of the whole process and the whole business operating model changes. Yeah, agreed. And, and I think, you know, one of the, the things that just because of my history with Patheon that I know that was I, I, fortuitous for, for TraceLink is focusing on investing with the outsource partners like the Patheons, the Catalans, the others. Because when, when you look at the molecules in phase one through three, they are predominantly all with emerging companies with zero commercial revenues or companies under a billion dollars. Right. 
It's not the big pharma that have right. the big budgets. And it's really going to be important for those outsourced uh, partners to be able to have the value added role that you're describing with like meaningful information, how to help shepherd your process in a way that is rapid and flexible, right? And again, I just gave the, the, the example of like the SpaceX versus NASA. Um, there's a company locally here, Locus Biosciences, that I was on the board for a number of years and I still work with. And, you know, they're using some CRISPR technology, not for gene editing, but to selectively kill bacteria in the microbiome of our bodies. So imagine you get a bacterial infection rather than ever taking an antibiotic, taking a therapy that only kills the bad bacteria, doesn't right. touch the good bacteria, and you, you never face antibiotic resistance. And so they had gone to you know, an outsourced partner as they were looking to build their supply for phase one clinical material. And it was, they had to have the process locked eight months before they needed the supplies for the study. And they couldn't, like, they physically couldn't get the process done on that timescale. Like, it just wouldn't work. And so they ended up building their own small little facility to supply their phase one. And so I think, you know, the bar for the ability for outsource partners like, you know, the Catalans, the Patheons, the big guys, as well as the others, has, has been risen significantly right. on the agility to go back, you know, to the theme of the talk and the value that they're going to play for their customers. And if they aren't going to demonstrate that they can be as agile as companies need them to be, as we roll forward, that's going to be problematic. And so, you know, I would say that's something to pay attention to as well. So, so Jeff, and that, that's, you know, those are really good insights and, and, I, and I appreciate it. It's, it's always good to look at the extreme boundaries of where this is all going, right? Patient of one, uh, looking for a unique cure of one with 20, 30 partners who are going to produce all the components and the processes to be able to deal with that patient. And that's an extreme case. And that's going to require ultra scale, ultra agility. So if you were sitting in front of, um, you know, a young leader looking to go into supply chain, and he said, look, I want to give you one piece of advice. I want you to really think about, you know, in advance, patient back about agility, what one piece of advice would you say retrospectively through your career, you've said you absolutely have to get that right? Because if you don't get that piece right, um, you know, it, it just, you know, you, you can't get this through efficiency. You've got to get it through intelligence and smartness. Yeah, I, I think where I've seen people be really successful is making sure they obtain a level of technical understanding of what they're working on right. so that they really understand the data and quality. Because in, in what I mean by that is the, the industry for a long time 
relied on, I follow this process. Did I check all the boxes on the process? Was there a deviation? Let me investigate that deviation. And I'm going to close out that deviation. And, and again, as you described earlier, very linear, but very process focused. Right. What, where people have been really successful in executing and in even designing kind of disruptive approaches is having the technical understanding that this data is what's important. This quality measure tells me whether I have the right product, a good product or not, versus relying on some rote process. Did the process go well or not? Right. And so, you know, building, you know, if you just look at, you know, in my view, like who have been successful, you know, in, in rising up their, their careers, they tend to be people that have built a level of technical competence and understanding in what they're doing to make really and help make really informed decisions versus being somebody that just knows a process. Let's right, cookie cutter. Right, cookie cutter. And so that's a fantastic point to close on. And in fact, you know, we've all read Gary Pisano's book, The Development Factory, right? And and I've spent some time with him. I've had him on a stage and he says, you know, I watch my the sale of my book go in spurts. You know, when I first wrote it and I beat all the big pharmaceutical companies up because they lost control of that basic understanding of their process, you know, and, and uh, I wasn't popular. And then suddenly along came biotech and everybody said, oh my gosh, we've got to really have a good technical understanding of our process in order to make biotech products. And suddenly the, 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 you know, my book sales spiked. So it, it's an interesting story and everybody in the industry has at some other stage flipped through the development factory and it's a fascinating story. And I wonder what the new development factory you know, version 2020 is going to look like after after COVID. So, Jeff, thank you very, very much for um, for being on this. You're an old friend of Tracing. You're an old friend of mine. I uh, really enjoyed working with you. And there are very few people that have gone from, you know, MESs and EBRs on a, on a, on a production, small molecule production site to cell and gene therapy leading investments and, and leading companies. So it's absolutely a pleasure to have you. And thank you for your insights. We really appreciate it. Keep well. well. Thank, thank you for having me, uh, Roddy. And I wish you and the entire TraceLink team continued success.